0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Circuits of Time, a home for the best in 80s movies. Grab your root beers and let's get
1: rocking. Hello everyone, it's episode 16 of the Secrets of Time podcast. I'm your host JD and I'm here with my good friend, Jeff Dogg. It's good to see you Jeff Dogg.
0: Yeah, you too, JD. I know it's been a, a, a wee break since our last episode, but
1: it's good to be back and, and we've got a good one today. So We have indeed. So let's get right into some of our movie discussion. Anything in the movie world, any movie news that you want to share with us?
0: Yeah, JD, Yeah, this one's just crept up out of nowhere, really. There's actually a film being made at the moment. It's going to be directed by Barry Levinson and it's about the making of The Godfather. So we've got Elizabeth Moss, who's in... Mad Men and obviously Handmaid's Tale and whatnot, she's going to join Oscar Isaac and Jake Gyllenhaal in this and it's about the struggle that Francis Ford Coppola had to actually make the, the classic
1: gangster movie It was one of those um, movies, you know there's always that film that everyone's seen that you haven't, everyone seems to carry that with them, don't Everyone's got that movie that everyone else has seen The Godfather was that for me in fact I don't think I watched it until I was Probably early 30s, th- sometime in the early 30s. Um, and, and of course, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I still haven't seen part two and three, believe it or
0: not. Funny you mention that, Jay. They actually, a friend of mine uh, loaned them to me when I was about 17, 18. And I only got round to watching the first one after about a year's time. The trilogy had sat on a, on a on a shelf for a year. And even then, you know, because I was quite young and I didn't appreciate the the whole thing. watched them again recently, so I wanted to fulfil that. Um, and just before Christmas, I watched the second and third. Finally, finally, finally watched the third one, and I must say I was a little bit disappointed. um You know, it's not the best ending to the trilogy. A little bit boring, uh, but I'd still say on the whole, great trilogy.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's something I definitely need to uh, get around to viewing. It, it was a bit similar with the uh, Once Upon a Time in America. It took me a long time to see that as well, and. I don't know if you've seen that one, but um, yeah, I think it probably took you a long time to see it, just on account of the fact that it's uh, such a long film. <laughs> it, it is, um, if I can, my recollection of that film was that the first half was absolutely phenomenal. I think it just really plummets in the second half of the film. But anyway, let's not uh, let, let's not kind of uh, discuss it too long. We're sidetracking. Yeah. Um, we'll I, I was just going to mention another
0: film from the same year,
1: 1984. I think good segue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the only other thing I was going to obviously say is did you know that the coming to america 2 sequel uh, trailer was released this last week yeah did jd it just sort of snuck
0: under the radar didn't it and then it was there you know it's one of those films that's been rumored but to actually see it in action you know arsenio hall back um you know since his uh successful career in the 90s oh actually sorry he's uh, since his last film which is probably Coming
1: to America (laughs) yeah I mean I can't think of any other film he's appeared in it's just like Coming to America and the Arsenio Hall show that's all I know him for I must admit I'm not overly excited having seen the trailer I mean I think it'll have some funny moments but the tone I'm not quite sure I like what it's serving up but I think we always knew that it was always just not something that was going to hit the mark of the original was it
0: no it's like that with any film when they reboot or remake them you know we've had it now for the past 20 years since the planet of the apes you're just always thinking will will it be any good
1: what are they going to do what are they going to change
0: well anyway let's
1: move on to our movie review and you may know this movie from the following sound slash song And, of course, if you didn't get it from that, what is the film we'll be discussing on this episode? Ghostbusters. Yes, Ghostbusters. Uh, Jadar, give our listeners some brief facts about Ghostbusters. Brief facts. We stick again to our
0: hallowed year of 1984 with Ghostbusters. It was directed by Ivan Reitman, who went on to direct a number of uh, comedy, action comedy type classics, would we say? Or would we say classics? Maybe not. Uh, it was filmed on a budget of between 25 and $30 million. And the box office was nearly $300 million. So we're talking about a huge return there. As we know, it's become a huge uh, franchise. So uh, Lord knows how much it's made since, uh, you know, not that money is the be all and end all, but it just it, it, it's, it's just a fact. It was written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, and also starred both Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, as well as Bill Murray and Ernie Hudson as the Ghostbusters. And
1: there's great chemistry between those characters. Wonderful. Well put. Uh, it's interesting. You, you say it was mentioned, uh, written by Dan Aykroyd, and was it? Did you also say Harold Ramus? Yes, uh, Ray Stantz and Egon Spengler are the characters. Yeah. In- did they? was he known for writing? Because you know, everyone always says about oh, Ghostbusters, so funny, it's it's so clever, it's such a good script, um, it's quite impressive. I know he was obviously. Was he one of the Saturday, Saturday Night Live uh, guys, Dan Aykroyd?
0: It's that's definitely Dan Aykroyd. It's that sort of uh, time and crew. Uh, they were they were uh, early eights, late seventies, early eighties, New York, the likes of Dan Aykroyd, and of course John Belushi who, who was meant to be in this film. Uh, and many others were of that time, and uh, they spawned many films from that Saturday Night Live uh, badge. And obviously, as time went on, things might have got worse and <laughs> worse. But obviously, uh, when during that time there was a, there was a definite creative uh, flurry, and there were definitely some classics coming out there. You, you mentioned about Harold Ramis maybe being a writer. i I think. He had something to do with writing Animal House from
1: the late seventies. If you've ever seen that, I have actually. It's a it's a legendary classic in my household. But what? Why did? We, why was that? Why was there such a boom in those it, those years with the Saturday Night Live? What was that? Uh, Can we hard, put that down to anything? Yeah, hard drugs, according to the stories. Uh, uh, do you know
0: what it, it is? That's the first thing that comes to mind, isn't it? Yeah, um, you know, Dan Aykroyd said that himself. He's on the record The saying, you know, the creativity that was going out there. They had to sit down in these meetings on a Tuesday, Wednesday and have the show ready to go on a Saturday. And they did, um, unfortunately, you know, um, but it was the done thing at the time. They partook in many uh, things that, that you shouldn't do. Uh, and of course, it cost eventually John Belushi his, his own life. And Chris Farley as well. A couple of years later, he was another one.
1: Um, he was the uh, Be- Beverly Hills ninja.
0: He was, yeah, yeah. Um, again, so Saturday Night Live. Sort of modelled himself as a bit of a modern John Belushi. Unfortunately, went, went the same way as him. So, message, takeaway message, uh, creativity is good, but drugs are bad.
1: <laughs> I thought you were going to say another message there, but anyway. <laughs> but let, let's uh, get into the story. What is Ghostbusters all about? On a philosophical level, JD, or just a synopsis? Well, why not you give us both?
0: Movie <laughs> okay we've got a team of scientists played by the aforementioned Harold, Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and they they lose their nice easy jobs at a university in New York dealing with the paranormal or paranormal studies or something like that uh, so eventually they decide to become uh, ghostbusters in order to make some money and put their scientific know-how to some use and along the way They just so happen to come across a gateway to another dimension, which is a doorway that will release untold evil upon the city. And the Ghostbusters end up saving New York from
1: complete devastation. Well, Puth, you know, the the intro scene of this film, it it, it just throws your eyes in, doesn't it? And it's such a great fair scene. It's obviously at the, the NY Public Library. And it's so creepy. I mean, we don't even have to see a ghost in that opening scene. It it doesn't give us anything like that. It was all, you know, uh, atmosphere, use of instruments and use of the camera. Uh, What was your impression from those first few minutes? Well, we're
0: talking about a film, obviously, that both of us, it's buried in our minds over the course of three decades now. That is one of the the abiding scenes and you you hit the nail on the head with the word you use, which is creepy. And I think one of the ways in which it does it is there's no, you don't know anything. You know, we know it's Ghostbusters and all that but we don't know anything what's going on here. We've just seen this, the public library, which I've been to that very spot. The ex- it's a scary building. Uh, he's huge, lions set in stone, and obviously the way the camera's set and everything, but nobody says anything. It's just music. It's camera movement. It's pacing. It's the character walking through the record, which, you know, if you've ever been in a quiet part of a library, especially a, a large library, like a university library or something, there's something inherently spooky about places like that with narrow bookshelves and nowhere
1: to go. No, I was just going to say there's that claustrophobic feeling with, as you yeah. say, the book, the bookshelves are quite tight together. Um, and of course, eventually we see, well, we don't see, uh, but the librarian sees something because we see a face glow up and a, a hair fly up, and it, it culminates in the classic Ray Parker Jr theme and we are in the mix at that point
0: yeah of course yeah I mean just that song just uh, I would argue that it that it beats uh, the Huey Lewis song from Back to the Future just in terms of link to the to the movie it's just brilliant it's a brilliant crossover isn't it between film and and music and then of course the music video for that has got lots of stars from the time in it so that it's it's you know in the days before the internet these crossovers were done because they and they worked really well.
1: And the thing is, I mean, me and you, um, we've known each other for, well, must be 25 years now. And, and there was a point when we started going out drinking and clubbing. And I can always remember whenever Ghostbusters came on, there was an audible cheer around the room. Everyone always loved listening to the, doesn't matter where you are, what bar, what scene, if Ghostbusters came on, everyone got up, didn't they, on their feet?
0: Yeah, isn't it strange that? So, talking about when we first started going on, that must have been uh, 23 20 yeah. years after the film, something like that. Uh, and, you know, the fact that you're going out on a, in, a, in a nightclub and you've got a theme song from a film, you know, not just like, I've had the time of my life from uh, Dirty Dancing, which is a song, you know, it doesn't quite mention the film in it, does it? But Ghostbusters' the song is about the film itself. You know who you're gonna. It's it's tied in with everything that the film's about. So to hit hey, up and see people. Yeah, I do remember those days, JD. We'll have them back <laughs> soon. We
1: will have them back soon. But it's not long until we are introduced to Dr. Peter Venkman. And according to the glass door of his office, he works in the field of paranormal studies. In fact, the glass door shows that there is a team of three. You've got, of course, Dr. Venkman himself, Egon Spengler, Dr. Ray Stance. And, of course, there's some spray paint. Something's been sprayed onto the glass door. <laughs> Burning and hell, Venkman. So <laughs> um, straight away, we, we, it's kind of given us some clues, like, you know, this guy's maybe a bit of a charlatan. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's, uh, he's obviously just riding on the coattails to, uh, make, to make a living. Um, there's something really sleazy about him, just the way he carries himself as well on we know a lot of his or most of his lines are actually ad libbed, anyway. But it's it's uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the 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 the, the, the spray the the red writing on the door, um, because that was actually going to be one of my questions for you. It looks like lipstick to me, which would tell me that it's a, a woman who he's maybe uh, cross paths with, and you know she's she's writing that on because she's been duped by him or something like that. Uh, yeah, and of well, course because of course that door, when we get through that door, we actually see that he's.
1: He's he's at his game at his game, isn't he? He's doing what he's what he what he does do. Well, he's not interested in his field of study. Uh, basically, he's kind of only interested, in obviously, getting the attention of this attractive woman, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, and it's a funny scene. Uh, it, it's, it is. It, I mean, it's not something we'd probably see in today's uh, market, is it? No, you
0: definitely wouldn't, JD. Um, I you know, a lot of things have to be san- sanitized now before they've even been put to paper, which is a shame. Um, You know, it's just the age that we live in, unfortunately. But uh, there's something just darkly comic about the fact that he's got this sort of quasi-scientific study set up where he's got two people in front of him, a young man and an attractive young lady. And the idea is they say what's on the card that he's holding without them seeing, and if they get it wrong, they get an electric shock. Now, of course, even if the lad's getting it right or wrong, he's giving them a shock, and the girl who's getting everything wrong, he's saying, yeah, perfect, brilliant, which is a, a way of him, you know, looking at it through a modern lens, he's, uh, he's, he's manipulating her really, isn't he? He's, uh, he's buttering her up. He's, he's he's sort of getting her ready to... Uh, he's flattering her, isn't he? <laughs>
1: He's using his job to woo the women.
0: Yeah,
1: exactly. You just wouldn't see it now, J.D. It's funny because I was watching an episode of Big Bang Theory only a couple of weeks ago, in fact, and they talked about this scene uh, because, of course, Bill Murray, or Dr. Ventman, should we say, explains that they are trying to understand the effects of negative reinforcement on ESP. Um, But, of course, according to The Big Bang Theory, it's not negative reinforcement. That's actually a, a mistake on the writer's part. It's really positive punishment. I think negative reinforcement would be the removal of a positive stimulus. So that was Dr. Sheldon Cooper of the Big Bang Theory, which is always great, actually, for some of these pop culture references. But I just thought that whilst we mentioned it, it might be worth throwing that in. Yes, these guys were writing it. They were throwing in as much pseudo-scientific
0: language as possible.
1: <laughs> oh, of course. and I don't, I don't think the audience would have been too interested at that point. But it's not long after that, that Ray. Ray based in the room. You can see straight away, and I think the good thing, or one of the strong points about Ghostbusters, or at least the introduction of the characters, is they make it very clear, very quickly, what kind of person the Ghostbuster is. Dr. Venkman is somewhat of a womaniser, if you like. Raised very much the enthusiast. He's very into, you know, the, the, the field, and it's apparent straight away because he comes in and tells Dr. Venkman that there's... Something big, like a bit of a story, and um, we obviously assume that that's what's going on at the public library.
0: Yeah, the, the, when you mention the characters in the introduction, and yet still in my mind, and it's probably got something to do with the animated series. When I picture Ray Stance, I imagine, and I'm sure you know what I'm going to say, the uh, goggles on his head and the cigarettes hanging out of his mouth, drooping down. That's right. And yeah, I th- that happens in one scene, but I think it happens in the at least in the introduction to the animated series. So that's probably where I'm coming from with that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? They stick in your head. And also, the thing that sticks in my head about Egon is he, every he's got this smirk on his face, this knowing smirk, whenever he talks. But I've seen Harold Remus do that in any film that he's in. You know, even through to Knocked Up, which was 2007. I think he he's got this look about him which is just
1: like I know what's going on here. You know, I'm in I'm in on the joke. No matter what serious role he plays, there always seems to be that underlying. You can always sense a smile on the horizon with him. But that's another one, of course, because when they get to the library, uh, Egon's already there, and he he's kind of he's got like a stethoscope, hasn't he? And he's listening to the table. And again, it's the introduction of the character. Ventman's the womanizer, raised the enthusiast. And um, Egon's definitely the scientist, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And in that
0: opening scene when they are uh, looking around the open drawers and everything that in the library, <laughs> they, there's a great line where uh, there's a load of books stacked up. And again, they mention some sort of, something like parallel stacking or something like that. Venkman says, yeah, there must be a ghost because no human would stack books
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that that's a good it, it's interesting because those those just first few minutes um the lines that he gives tells us that Benman's a skeptic himself isn't he um yeah. I think when the, <laughs> we're interviewing the witness who's lying down he even starts to ask whether there's a history of schizophrenia in a family
0: yeah
1: yeah he's very cynical isn't he um so they obviously go down into the lower depths of this library. Um, to investigate, they find the books. And then it's this point we see the first glimpse of a ghost. Uh, it's the, the Grey Lady. Um, and, and it's quite a funny scene because they're obviously they're in this field and they're unprepared. They actually don't know what to do when they finally stumble upon a ghost. And, of course, the ghost eventually turns into this horrible, ghoulish monster. I mean, very, consider a, a somewhat of a family film. It's very frightening, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you see that in an awful lot of
1: films, especially from the
0: '80s. They push that boundary of what's sort of considered um, not acceptable. But you know, a lot of things that are really scary are shown on screen in what are children's films. That ghost is so frightening. Like some, or like all of the effects, because it was before digital effects, the practical effects. That you know, they, they stand. They don't stand the test of time in many places, but there are certain things that really do um pop up, so we say, and uh definitely just look impressive now. And I think the effort that must have gone into making that prop or dummy or whatever it was where would frighten any, any child now. I'm not sure what the, 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 the UK rating is of Ghostbusters. Is it a PG? Possibly.
1: I'm not sure, but I know just having watched it back just recently, there are a number of scenes that would not look out of place in one of your mainstream horror movies, you know, and I think of, like, the one where Dana's in the chair and the arms come out there. There's really nasty scenes in this film, but it, it gets away with it because the rest of the film's kind of light-hearted and things like that.
0: Sexual themes as well, in there?
1: Yeah. But, of course, they are unprepared and they eventually run away from this ghost of the... <laughs> they leg it out of the library and I think the
0: manager comes chasing after them saying, did you see it? Did you see it? But what gets me about the following scene after that is they're just walking around back to their um, back to their office at the university but they're just talking about it a, a quite relaxed, quite calm considering the fact that they've just seen a ghost obviously Ray's talking ten to the dozen saying about how fantastic this isn't that but Venkman just doesn't seem phased. Despite
1: the fact that he is this uh, charlatan, basically, isn't he? But now he's I, picked, I picked up on the exact same thing. It it, it did seem to just be brushed aside because um, the run away, they're, they're totally paralysed with fear, and you know, before you know it, they're just talking normal as if it's just something that happens regularly. Um, in fact, Egon mentions uh, not long after the library scene. Um, I think he's picked up with some of his data with some of his tools. Um, about that, uh, based on some of his, his readings uh, he thinks they have an excellent chance of actually catching a ghost and uh, holding on to it indefinitely um, and of course we didn't—we don't know it yet but he will be referring to one of the ghost traps, which was a very popular toy when we were youths, Chris
0: Oh my goodness, those toys were my life, had the, the firehouse, which was a building um, I had the, the, the Ecto-1 backpack the the trap, which was attached to a foot pedal, and the the the, the doors flapped open. I had all of the toys. I think I have still got Egon Spengler somewhere. He presses arms in and his his uh, his mouth, cut, his jaw comes down. His tongue sticks out.
1: That's right. I think his tie or something folds or something. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Now these are yeah. obviously
0: related to the um, the real Ghostbusters the cartoon. But God, those toys were something special they really were
1: universally loved 20 um i think in fact i had this strange big figure um of, it was like a dustman dustbin man and he used to just put like the bin trash can over his head and he turned into a fly and again i think it was just a real ghostbusters thing but used to absolutely adore it but I
0: think um, one of the just a note on toys um following star wars the success of star wars which george lucas always said the idea is sell the toys and the kids will make the story themselves i think a lot of things capitalized on that and we see through the 80s and into the 90s a lot of toys from films which had nothing to do with the movie so for example the one i'm thinking of is like the terminator so there were terminator toys based on terminator 2 which was an adult film by the way um but the toys from that were like a a car you know remember that from the movie <laughs> uh, a liquid metal man, which had guns for arms, all the sorts of stuff that you just didn't see in a film. But it's a, <laughs> the fantasy. But when you think about it, the fact that they were aimed at kids was uh, was was
1: yeah, yeah. It's true. And we and we said this back in our RoboCop episode. It's like kids were going around with RoboCop lunchboxes. And, you know, <laughs> they were even though they were kind of aimed at the you know for adults. Kids definitely there was something there for kids, wasn't it? And maybe it was the toy aspect. Um, but back to, back to the story of the film, um, of course, you said you returned to the university, um, and of course, the belongings are being taken away. The university's uh, removed the grant, uh, which enabled them to, to carry on and study. Yeah, because
0: um, you know, Dean, whatever his name is, um, you know, and he goes, right, I'm, I'm glad you're back, uh, you know, I'm packing your stuff up. And they're so naïve, they say something like, well, you're moving us to a better office on campus. <laughs>
1: But that's the point when, of course, they decide that the only alternative is to go into business, and they obviously need some capital. And they—you—the yeah, next scene is Ray coming out the bank. I think he sold the house that his parents were leaving to him, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, they say something like, "It's okay, Ray. Don't worry about it." He says, "That's, but well, that's the—that's the house I was born in."
1: I think Egon says something along the lines of, "In five years, the um, something like." <laughs> The rate of repayments will clock up about $95,000 or something like that.
0: The the interest rate is uh, 19%. And, uh, you know, there's no, they say no, they didn't even negotiate. And I think Benkman says something like, it's okay nowadays, everybody has three mortgages.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that enables them, of course, to go and purchase the old firehouse.
0: Yeah, yeah, beautiful building that. Um, still a functioning firehouse, actually.
1: Uh, I have. So it, it, it actually was a firehouse pre and post Ghostbusters? Yeah,
0: yeah, um, I have been there. Um, we were on a, a tour. It was a movie location tour. And obviously in New York City, I've, there's something everywhere. So, for example, on that I'll always remember on that same tour, just a stone's throwaway, or it might have just been over the road, was a baseball, a, um, a basketball court that was used in, I think it was in Big, and I think it was in... Uh, big Daddy, you know, and then like right over the road, you've got the firehouse from Ghostbusters. It is like a big movie set New York. People do say that. But that is a, um, a magnificent building to see. And also an interesting thing, as we went past on the bus, they said, look in the window just at the side. Just at the side was the Ghostbuster sign from the second film. Um, it, it looks like it's in a storage room inside the building. And it was just sort of there in the window. You could see it as you went past. You know the the the
1: two the symbol, with the, the the two fingers. Fantastic. Up. I mean, I'm surprised it hasn't been stolen after all these years. <laughs> and, and of course, the the I think it's Egon and uh, Ventman aren't too keen on the building. And they start to talk about the faulty wiring. It's a nightmare. It's you know a massive danger. But Ray loves it. Ray, you know, goes down the fire pole, and in fact, he loves it so much he wants to sleep there that night, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, I think it says a lot about the characters, that actually, because Egon's talking about the, the foundational line. Meanwhile, Ray's like, it's got a pole, come and use it. It's like a big child, isn't he? And then he says, uh, you know, can we sleep here tonight? Like a sleepover. So yeah, he is. He's very, he's like the, wy- the wide-eyed, naive enthusiast, isn't he? Right. Almost
1: childlike, isn't
0: he? Yeah, but he knows his stuff, the way he talks.
1: We're soon introduced to... Um what will be our the first customer of the Ghostbusters new business, and it's Dana. Uh, and of course, not long after, we also see her neighbour, Lewis Tully, played by the great Rick Moranis. And then, of course, we see that scene when she enters her apartment and the eggs start to explode on the counter. Again, it's a, another great, creepy scene, isn't it?
0: Yeah, so so just a, a background note on Sigourney Weaver. She'd been in Alien in nineteen eighty, uh, sorry nineteen seventy nine at this point, and she was one of the first, or perhaps the first, strong female lead characters in the film. So she'd obviously gained some sort of first uh, stardom at this point. Rick Moranis probably quite quite new at the time. He's brilliant in this film. Just the the, the his manner of speaking and the the things he says is hilarious without being intentionally being funny. But yeah, when she does go into that apartment, what a great scene! Again, for practical special effects, I just love. We talked about this before. I just love the idea of someone going to work, thinking their job today is I've got to find a way of of making, you know, a gremlin pop up, or you know, something like that, or something pop out of a gremlin, or I've got to um, make an egg pop and hatch. And so, I was looking into this, and I don't know if you know how. How it was done jd but basically what they did was they they cut whole, uh, a they scored a line into into actual egg then covered that line up that which, which obviously would have weakened the, the shell they covered it up with a flour or, or plaster or something like that so you so you wouldn't see it where, it, where it had been compromised basically and then they blew air underneath into the egg which which made it explode and the egg then obviously would have jumped out with the force of that onto the uh, the worktop. But they heated the heat of the worktops underneath with propane or whatever, you know, like a heater, basically. So it was like a grill, and which cooked the egg straight away. I, I find stuff like that just fascinating how they managed to do that.
1: It was fascinating, and it's so well done. I mean, at no point when you're watching that, do you think that this is like a special effect? It looks legitimate, doesn't it?
0: Well, because it is, yeah, that's it. They, they've done everything to make it look
1: real. We also hear the growl from the fridge. And, of course, well, there's something said. Uh, it's Zool. And I think the first time you watch it, you probably don't pick it up. Uh, it's quite... The, the, the effect itself is quite hard to interpret. We find that out a bit later on. And that's the first uh, the point of the film when we hear the name of... Uh, I suppose you could say one of our antagonists. Because I suppose you could say that there's... well. Maybe four in this film, if we say that the two terror dogs yeah. um, are antagonists. You've obviously got um, Goza,
0: Right.
1: And, and, of course, Walter Pett, who we'll, who we'll come to later, um, because he's definitely an antagonist in this film.
0: Yeah, th- this Goza thing uh, does go into the realm of a bit daft, doesn't it? But we have got the terror dogs, and obviously when she opens the fridge, you see this gateway to the other dimension. Uh, and, of course, the other... Um, the other antagonists which we haven't mentioned yet,
1: which shall we save for later, JD? We can say, oh well, let's. Well, that means there's five then, I suppose. But <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Uh, it, uh, maybe if it was made in 2021, the monsters wouldn't. You know, I don't, maybe they'd seem a bit cheesy, and, and maybe it was the special effects at the time. They look a bit dated now, don't they? Certainly, the, the terror dogs.
0: We go from what we've just talked about there with the eggs to the terror dogs, and I hate to say it, but some of the puppetry in this film, is it's not that good.
1: I mean, as a kid, it looked great. I mean, I don't remember watching this as a kid thinking, you know, this looked corny. I remember being actually quite frightened of the terror dogs. Yeah. Um, but of 1984, it's nearly 40 years on. It's dated now, isn't it?
0: It is dated, but they were and still are gruesome things to look at. You know the when the close the extreme close up shots where they're roaring things like that it would be terrifying as well to a young child i really feel but just in terms of the look there are better things from the eighties perhaps maybe it's to do with the budget at, at the time and all, but also the case of well not case because it's a benefit in many ways modern technology um sounded like Rufus then the modern, <laughs> the modern technology you know you've got to imagine when you were watching something and on video in the 80s and 90s you may as well have just smeared vaseline all over the lens you can get away with an awful lot like that but with the way things are now crystal clear um, even dvd but certainly blu-ray things just <laughs> just don't, you know you can see the cracks everywhere can't you
1: yeah you couldn't get away with it now we're soon introduced to what will be will be ecto-1 uh, but it's not introduced as ecto-1 we just see ray um, turn up at the old firehouse. It, it, is the car a? It's a hearse, isn't it?
0: It's a, it's a, a it's a an ambulance slash hearse that would have right. been in the fifties and sixties. If you if you've seen the footage of um, Lee Harvey Oswald when he's when he's shot, he's bundled into something that's very very similar. It's a sort of old fashioned, really long vehicle ambulance you know in the days when i guess paramedics job was to just bundle people in the in the back and get them to hospital as soon as possible um obviously now ambulances these days are much more like a hospital ward on wheels aren't they and there's a lot more to the job than just throwing people on a stretcher and getting them to hospital as soon as possible but yeah that that's that kind of vehicle it is and i mean it's iconic it's a character in itself you know it I, is it's and- iconic that's an overused phrase but the actor one is and there's no there's no two ways about it
1: and of course, and it's the sound as, as much as the visual isn't it it's an iconic sound the siren the noise it makes is that is that in the the, the theme uh, uh, i'm i'm not too sure it's just instantly recognizable at least from my point of view so Dana, then shows up at the old firehouse doesn't she she's yeah. obviously had the incident in in the in the apartment with the eggs and the refrigerator um but she goes to the old firehouse and that's because of course she's seen the cheesy Ghostbusters commercial is that right am I missing that it, that's why she gets to know about them isn't it
0: yeah I'm glad you mentioned that that it's cheesy yeah it's obviously deliberate and cheesy but you know he, there's little shots where they sort of stood there and giving the thumbs up and pointing at the camera
1: and things like that. Um, she- and, of course, she, she mentions to them um, about what happened. And then she, of course, says that she hears the word Zool, uh, which is what we did here. But I think if you watch it for the first time, it's quite hard to understand what, what the growl says. But, of course, it is Zool. Um, and I think the, the, the was it Ray or Egon who say, you know, they're going to research some sort of historical context of that name, isn't it?
0: The only thing that Venkman's interested in is, is uh,
1: getting a date with Sigourney Weaver. He's back at his game of trying to get the woman, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. And, of course, it's funny because she doesn't like him in this first meeting, does she? Venkman goes back to Dana's apartment. <laughs> he, he's got this strange pump tool. Um, <laughs> it, it's He's very funny. It's typical Bill Murray. I think there's, uh, at one point, when... Um, he pops his head into a bedroom and, and Dana says something along the lines of, that's just a bedroom, you know, nothing ever happens in there. And you can see his face. Like, I think he says something like, that's a shame or something like that. He's great. And it is a bit of a, you know, he likes her, but you don't, she thinks she calls him art, doesn't she? And he certainly is an odd, odd character. Um, yeah. and, and maybe you think to yourself, you know, it's a film. These two are obviously going to connect at some point. But this initial meeting, she doesn't like the guy, does she? No, which
0: is you know, it's the sort of golden rule of films. You get two characters who rub up against one another, that are, are going to rub up with one another later. To put it another way, um, but <laughs> she, probably goes back to the kind of characters that Sigourney Weaver plays. Is she? She takes no, no rubbish from from anyone. You know, she's not. Um, she's not afraid to call people out as well. And she doesn't fall for him and um, his silly ways. You know, she she says something like you're more like a game show host (laughs) and he really is isn't he yeah he is yeah and and i think that if if anything makes him want to you know it's like opposite the track kind of thing what what always and still gets me to this well especially gets me to this day she plays the cello right yeah is it the cello yeah
1: I so, can't recall the instruments. I remember she, she comes out at one point in the film, she comes out of because I think Venkman's been to see it in a show or at least he, he claims to have watched it.
0: Yeah, if I remember rightly, especially from the second film, it's a cello, certainly some large instrument, right? How does she afford to live on, well, over the road from Central Park? Because I could imagine the property and prices in those places. In that building, I mean, it might be a little bit cheaper after the renovation, work, uh, due to the fact that the place is going to need renovating very shortly within this film.
1: And it was a, fa- it really was an impressive apartment block. It really was a nice place. Yeah, I mean, literally
0: um, to an extent because he's a an accountant. You imagine he's got lots of wealthy clients. But I mean, she, oh, no, he, she, no, disrespect <laughs> to to, to or, or orchestral players who are also listeners.
1: I'm sure it, could have been, it could have been a very prestigious choir, you just don't know. Um, we soon arrive at maybe, you might consider this, you know, maybe the big turning point in the film. Um, the Ghostbusters are settling into the old firehouse. They're kind of bummed out, they're sitting around, eating junk food, nothing's going on. And all of a sudden the phone rings and we hear that famous line delivered by Janine, who's kind of like the receptionist who. Probably spent the previous two weeks just reading magazines, flirting with Egon as well. But of course, she answers the phone and someone's clearly telling us something about a ghost. And then we hear Janine stand up and and she delivers that line. Um, you know what it is, don't you? We got one,
0: thought it was. Sorry, JD, yeah, I couldn't, yeah, yeah, we got one. And that's all, it's all systems go then, isn't it? And going down the pole, getting into the gear, which we see for the first time as well.
1: Love, we do. And that was what I was going to say to you, is we see the uniforms for the first time. We also see Hector 1, in fact, in its new uh, design for the first time. Yeah. Um, I think it's sped up because of when it first leaves the firehouse, I think it's implied or it's at least meant to make you believe that they're going really fast. <laughs> if you watch about back, it really looks just like a, the old Benny Hill show where things are just <laughs> sped up. So the arrive at the hotel. Oh, oh it is a hotel isn't it um and it's such a great scene this this is this is uh of course the scene with Slimer um but interestingly enough he's not actually known as Slimer in this film I think that comes afterwards I think it was only um maybe even Ghostbusters 2 or the, the real Ghostbusters maybe but his name actually he didn't actually have a name in, in in Ghostbusters 1 I think he was just known as like a blob wasn't he
0: yeah, I think he probably just became a sort of another iconic character. And again, after the the real Ghostbusters, the animated show, we we see Benkin on the floor and he can't move. And he says something like, "He slimed me." So I guess that's where the names come from and just
1: stuff. Well,
0: no, I think you're right. Is you know, that when he's covered? Is that when he's covered in washing up
1: liquid? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great special <laughs> effects there. <laughs> And it's not long after that when we are in uh, it's like a ballroom, isn't it? And of course, Egon says um the important tip the the health and safety tip of never cross or don't cross the streams.
0: Yeah, he says, um, I forgot to tell you something. Um, you know, don't don't cross the streams. And he says, What'll happen? Uh why? It'll be bad, <laughs> really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then he goes into detail and says something like all matter moving at the speed of light so
1: yeah it's very bad but of course they eventually catch Slimer in the ballroom in the ghost trap yeah, we see it in, in like operation for the first time not
0: before they completely annihilate a very expensive looking chandelier <laughs>
1: <laughs> they do lay waste to the hotel really but but that's the point isn't it because they go from um bummed out um desperate people who, who, who want to succeed and. Following that, I mean, ghost fever pretty much grips New York, doesn't it? There aren't Time magazine, newspapers, TV interviews. In fact, there's a great montage where it's kind of showing you like them uh, on different snippets of newspaper coverings. And right at the end, in fact, there's a a really peculiar scene when Ray's in bed, and I think a a ghost, like a specter of like a lady, starts to undo his belt and (laughs) fly. It's a crazy little montage, but ghost fever really has hit New York at this point, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. Again, coming back to the adult theme in this film, <laughs> um, but yeah, that that that, that the montage got that's um, that's that's just an icon of its own, isn't it? In the eighties, the montage scene. If you ever want to pass time and show success or failure or or something that's happened over a period of time, you can always do it with a montage.
1: Brilliant, and it works so well.
0: It does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you would imagine them being on the cover of all these magazines and things, wouldn't you?
1: It that's the point after the, the montage, when we finally see the arrival of Winston. And, and, and we can talk about this because we're, we're nearly an hour into the film and the fourth Ghostbuster shows up. It's a bit of a strange thing to have just, you know, wedged in an hour into a film. You know, the film's only on for an hour and 45 minutes. These are your main guys. And all of a sudden, this new cast member turns up. What? Why? Why did that happen? Was do we know anything about why Winston was brought in an hour into the film? Do you know anything about that?
0: I, I'm sure that there'll be some explanation as to why they did it. If my understanding, you know, and what I've always taken away from the film, which is, at the end of the day, if you're going to watch a piece of art or look at a piece of art, it's about how you interpret it. So my interpretation is that we need someone from the outside. An onlooker, almost like our proxy into these this world. Earlier on in the film, we saw Venkman in that in that role. He was very much the outsider, with the other two being the scientists. But now they're all three of them are the Ghostbusters. I think we need an outsider just to look in. He's going to be like our guide into this world, and also just to remind these guys as well. You know, that he's like a reminder of real life in the real world. I feel with, with Winston, he's got some great lines as well.
1: I was I was going to say the exact same thing to you. It, possibly the funniest lines in the movie, really. <laughs> um, I know Bill Murray's kind of maybe the lead comic role, but, but Winston really does have some belters, doesn't he? He
0: does, yeah. And of course, Annie Hudson is uh, is known for that, and obviously he's been in a few other things, but certainly Winston's at the is you know his ultimate. Well, I
1: mean, it he was is. in Operation Delta Force as well. Was he in there? He was in, yeah, he was in one of those. <laughs> Part 16 or 17? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> Eventually, uh, Peter uh, Venkman, he-, he meets Dana, doesn't he, when she comes out of this um, performance? Um, I think he claims to have watched her. And she's different with him, isn't it? And I know she's been watching him, but I think there's a scene when she's doing yoga in the apartments and she starts to smile, seeing him on the telly. Um, and then of course when she sees him outside near the fountain she's smiling again she feels differently about him doesn't she
0: yeah she's with that other guy isn't she talking about the the, you know I can't believe something mundane about
1: he's a stiff
0: yeah and then she's looking at him he's stood there by the fountain with his (laughs) he's got the boiler suit on with a a, a neon red, red or orange jacket on you know, twirling round. So I guess that's kind of like, she's changing her mind to him. He's a little bit different. He's from a different world to where he's not in the same, he doesn't move in the same kind of circles. So, you know, obviously now it's a classic tale, isn't it? You've got, you know, star-crossed lovers.
1: And then, of course, we have um, and um one of our favourite movie douchebags in Walter, Pet, Walter. who who... Claims to be from the or is from the Environmental Protection Agency, who shows up. We've talked a lot of me about some of the movie douchebags, and I know we said uh, Chad from Weird Science, but uh, Walter Peck's certainly up there, isn't he?
0: He's brilliant, isn't he? And yeah, at the same time, what does he do? You know, if you actually look at his screen time, it's probably about ten minutes,
1: maybe a little bit more. But there's just... And of course, and and of course, justifiably, I suppose, if you've got these four rogue guys who under no jurisdiction why wouldn't he show up and and one answers I mean yeah of course you know shutting down the power to the actual building was a bit of a uh, strange decision but his reason for being there was certainly justified wasn't it?
0: Yeah definitely but I think it just says a lot about the kind of character he is when he starts trying to order the police chief about and the police chief says something to him like listen Pencil Neck you
1: do your (laughs) job and I'll do mine." (laughs) <laughs> soon we are back in Dana's apartment and that was the scene we referenced earlier when she's attacked uh, she's in the chair isn't she and the arms burst out of the chair and she's pulled towards, well I think it, is that our first look at the terror dog or did we see it earlier in the refrigerator
0: did we see a glimpse of it in the fridge perhaps but yeah definitely in more detail here and those horrible arms that coming out of the chair you know it's probably just a, a, a proper guy, isn't it? With his arms through these latex things. But, God, it's horrible. And the way the chair is dragged towards that room, it's, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: And it goes back, to, again, to what we said. It would have not been out of place in, in one of your big horror films, would it? No, I mean, same here as Nightmare and Elm Street. Very similar in style, some of those scenes. So the dogs themselves, they are here to possess, are they? They, they? they take possession of two of our characters. Uh, Dana and of course the neighbor Lewis. Yeah.
0: Um so we've got, um, we got a great scene where Benkman goes around for a date, and she, you know, she's all <laughs> she's being all sexy now, and she's being possessed, and she's saying something like, You want this body? Uh take me now, and you know, she's got all the makeup on and all that, the hair's being all blow dried. <laughs> um, so you know she means business. See, she takes him into the bedroom. And says, "You know, I can't believe I was watching this as a kid. But I guess when you, your mind probably just blots out the things that you don't understand." But she, she, he's got a great line when she says to him, "I want you inside me," and he says, "I, I don't know about that because I think there's already at least two people in there." <laughs> <laughs>
1: but she plays that also. I mean, she's so good in it, isn't she? Sigourney Weaver, she plays it so well. And I remember being quite frightened of that as a kid that scene when she's floating and she's got these like almost fang like teeth and the eye makeup. Very scary, wasn't it?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that you definitely get right in these films in the second one as well. I'm sure you know what scene I'm going to mention possession of characters. And I'm thinking of one in particular from the second film.
1: You're thinking of uh, the the little guy that he's got, well, he's not foreign, but he's got like a foreign accent. I can't remember his name, Yanos or something. His
0: name in the films
1: Yanos. He was the he was in was it Sex in the City or something
0: like that. He's been in lots of things. Anyway, you'll know the guy when you see him. Kelly Gone There.
1: Do you know which scene I'm talking about, JD? I know exactly the scene. It's when he turns up at Dana's door and she won't let him in. Yeah. And he walks away and his eyes glow red. Oh. And, and I'll tell you why I remember that scene. Um, because I remember one of the first few films I'd ever seen on the cinema or movie theatre, if you're one of our American listeners, um, was actually Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. And my mum took me and my brothers. I don't remember much about the film, but I definitely remember that scene. Oh. I always remember, I don't know if I like a, you know grabbed hold of my mum. It was it, very frightening. Um, and, and as you as you say, Ghostbusters, it, it does a great job of making you laugh, but it does a hell of a job of scaring you when it needs to.
0: Yeah, and you know the other scene as well from the second film when the kids on the, when Oscar's on the um, the ledge of the building outside. Uh, Is that the
1: one where there's a, a ghost at like a, a pram?
0: It's him, isn't it? It's that Yano, well,
1: dressed up as a, a nanny. Oh my word, that was frightening as well. Do you know, we, we, we'll talk a bit more about Ghostbusters 2 and the legacy. It, it gets a bit of a raw deal for me, but uh, we'll we'll talk about it a bit later on. But of course, the Dana is possessed by one of the terror Dogs and becomes the Gatekeeper. Um, and of course, Lewis is possessed and becomes the Keymaster. I think it, it's implied. It's like it's, it's like a female and a male, isn't it? The yeah, you know, keymaster key is the male and the gatekeeper is the female. It's like a sexual connotation towards that, isn't
0: it? <laughs> definitely, but Yeah, definitely, I was watching that again, rewatching it recently, thinking, this is very sexualized, this definitely. But we've got to surely talk about the scene when uh, Lewis Tully is chased out of his apartment by this claymation
1: dog. <laughs> it's not such a of time. You can actually talk, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you why I like that scene. It's the two minutes beforehand when he's trying to entertain his, his guests. And obviously, you know, he, he references the fact that he, he's into all his vitamins. Mm-hmm. And it shows you, like, the, the spread and the buffet. And people have eaten just, like, carrot sticks. It's, and, of course, I think two people come into the room and he's introducing them. And he's such a great character, isn't
0: he? He is, yeah. In that scene, he says something like, you know, oh, he's talking to someone he says, Oh, well, you know, and, and the reason why I held this part in I only invited clients and not friends is so it was tax deductible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, very good. Soon so of course Lewis is possessed, uh, Dana's possessed, and we also see the return of Walter Pett, who turns up, doesn't he, with some officers and orders the shutdown. And of course, uh, this releases the ghosts from the containment units. Um, and all hell breaks loose in new york city doesn't
0: it yeah that's where we have another montage with a a great sort of stinty song in the background drum machines all that sort of stuff
1: yeah i mean we we see sliming again don't we he's in like a the the hot dog stand and he he comes out of the tray with all the the hot dogs in his mouth (laughs) but i think i think my favorite one is the the taxi driver um, the guy jumps in a cabin. He's like a zombie, isn't he? He's more of a ghost.
0: Yeah, brilliant puppetry, actually, in that. I mean, I know we said about the dogs. Not looking, uh, not, not the test of time, but there's the horrible sort of skeleton that drives the taxi off, <laughs> that guy in it. The, the, uh, the, the spirits of the dead or whatever it is. Uh, can you remember how it gets into the taxi?
1: Oh, is it through the exhaust pipe? goes in through the exhaust pipe. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, it, it looks more like something from Day of the
0: Dead, doesn't it, than Ghostbusters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like half human, half skeleton. But I know we're not, not onto our Did you know section yet, JD? But did you know that um, in the second film, there's a there's a scene where, I mean, the second film in many ways is a rerun of the first. Um, but there's a scene when the a mink coat comes to life and runs down the street away from. That's the right. do you Remember that? That was yes, written, I do. That was written for the first film, but they never got round to doing it.
1: Ah, right. I'm sure, is that the, am I right? It's the second one, isn't it, when the, the guy picks up the phone, uh, he's at like the harbour, and I think he says yeah. the Titanic just arrived.
0: Yeah, you see all these ghosts coming out of the <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, um, But our Ghostbusters, of course, end up getting arrested, uh, or, at least, you know, the the, the put into the, the local prison, aren't they? And they start to, God knows where they get it, in, in a prison cell, but they somehow have the the blueprints for the, our apartment block don't think and it's then we find out that the architect for the apartment building built it for the purpose of concentrating spiritual turbulence i think is how egon put it it was a guy by the name of evo shando i don't know if that was one of your questions which i may have spoiled Um <laughs> I, he was a, a member of a secret society of goza worshippers. Uh, so it starts to tie the story in quite nicely and, and gives some explanation as to why it goes is even uh, a thing, or at least part of the story.
0: Did you know
1: anybody um, else in that jail? JD, um, the prison guard? I did think you looked familiar, actually, but I don't know who it
0: was. It's uh, Reg- Reginald uh, Vel-, Vel Johnson, is it? Is the him? name doesn't ring a
1: bell. He was the 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 cop out of Dyard. Ah, uh, well, you know, as soon I, it was the first time today when I'd watched it, and I thought. He's off something I couldn't put a name to, but now that you mention it, yeah, I can see it. We then have the meeting with the mayor, which again is another classic scene. Bill Murray at, at his best, isn't he? Yeah, um my favourite scenes that JD. He he uses his charm, of course, to convince the mayor to let them take on Gozer. I think he tries to bribe him with you know you know what would it be like if, if you, the mayor, could save New York City and ensure all these votes? Um, and of course, the, the Ghostbusters are freed and 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 Pecks. Reprimanded, isn't he? He is, you know, the man. Uh, we can talk about this maybe in our
0: favorite scenes in a bit more detail, but he says, Get this guy out of here. And then he's gone, then, yeah. And he says something like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to nail you, or something like that, yeah.
1: <laughs> we see the key master eventually find the gatekeeper, don't we? And they both go, I think he, he, they both end up in, on top of the apartment building and they go up this staircase. Is it implied that they mated? Because as a kid, it was never something I picked up on, but watching it recently, it was like, is it implied that they mated?
0: Yeah, something's gone, gone on, hasn't it? Um, it's
1: definitely implied. That I enabled the, the, the opening of the gateway, I suppose, didn't it? Yeah. But the Ghostbusters arrive at um, the apartment block. Uh, it's great, isn't it? Because I think they, they, they turn up with like a bit of an entourage. They've got the military and the police. Um, and and they've got the crowd also outside the building. Everyone's cheering them on. You can see what um, the Ghostbusters mean to the people of the city, can't you?
0: Yeah, it's one of those scenes, very much like uh, Bill and Ted, you know, with the (laughs) cheering them on. And, you know, it's all Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. I love it. It's cheesy, but I loved it. And I remember that as a kid, you know, when you want to be the characters, don't you? And I just wanted to be them in that moment. I mean, wearing the gear and... Oh, that's what I mean. That's what those those toys just fill that that desire, the, the fantasy
1: of being there. A... Oh, great. Um, they, is the elevator broke because they go up, they end up having to go up the stairs, don't they? I don't know if it's ever told about the elevator being broken, but um it shows you them laboring up to the top of the apartment building, doesn't it? Um, yeah. I think they, they get to the 22nd floor and arrive, but when you see that shot from the floor looking up. That looks a lot more than 22 floors doesn't it yeah
0: they're, they're looking with trepidation because they've got to fight but also i mean that staircase is something and there's a there's a game um it's it's awful a ghostbusters game that was on every console going at the time it's a it's a, it's an awful game firstly, but the last or well, one of the last levels you've got to climb staircases like in a sort of donkey Kong kind of way like going up 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 if you die on one of those levels of ghosts, which are hard to kill, you're back to the start. I, I think you might even be back to the start of the game. <laughs> 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 you know, games kids, they'd mug you, wouldn't they? In those days, they just, you know, you well, have to. I can remember distinctly the video game with the logo. Now that makes you want to buy. it. When you get home and play that,
1: and it's a, it's garbage. <laughs> kids, kids will never understand the pain of spending three or four hours on a game only to die and have to go back to the start. It's just not something that these current kids have now, is it? No, they don't.
0: And do you know what? Another thing as well with the games now, you can, if it parts hard, you can skip that part of the game in many cases. Or, you know, just if you die once or twice, it will just say skip ahead or, uh,
1: yeah. It'll respawn as many times as you like.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, It's not the same.
1: But then the Ghostbusters arrive at the top, they finally reach the summit, and we finally are introduced to Goza. I think when we first, we've seen this film so many times now, it's probably hard to remember what your first impressions were. But what what do we make of Goza? Is she intimidating? Is she scary? Are are we surprised it was a woman after all the the billing and the the build up? Do you assume it's going to be a monster? What was your thoughts on Goza? (laughs) Uh, the thing she
0: does and the power that she seems to have are scary. But the image is like an '80s power dress, power trip—you know, square shoulders, uh, sorry, like a pointed shoulders, the flat top hairstyle. It's quite laughable, I must say. In in nowadays, looking back, that's only my I, opinion.
1: The red eyes give it give it a little something, don't they? scary. But play really part well, but. And then we hear the infamous line of choose the destructor and it's great i actually put a tweet out not not so long ago on our twitter page of you know if you were in that position and you heard the line choose the destructor uttered by gozer what's the first thing you think of and we had some great responses sure someone you know said dolly parton or something like that would have made a great ending but of course ray stance um can't help but think of something from his childhood something innocent and it is it is of course the stay puff marshmallow man what were your thoughts on the
0: stay puff marshmallow man or just the marshmallow man is one of the i forgot everything about this film's iconic but that image and that uh almost like a Pillsbury doughboy crossed with a if you're in if you're in the UK a bertie bassett who's a kind of made out of uh, sweets isn't he
1: what, like a, the Michel, the michelin man almost michelin
0: man yeah yeah um oh just the look the smile the creepy smile the eyes that move uh oh, everything about him is absolutely just iconic the fact that he's a he's in this sailor sailor's outfit
1: and the effects are quite impressive aren't they i know some of the some little uh, cuts aren't too great, but when the, you get the scenes, uh, or at least the cuts, from, you know the long shots, and he's kind of um, walking through the city. It is quite scary, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's not. It's not too bad of an effect, even watching it now. But um, I can only imagine that they've done that using a person dressed up and miniature mini, miniature buildings, and then they've overlaid shots of people walking through the, the streets. On that. However, they've done it, obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that. But it looks okay. It, it looks okay. And then when you see the close-ups, it's obviously models or miniatures, and they look, you know, they look realistic as far as massive marshmallow men go.
1: <laughs> the, that minute when we find out that Ray's chosen something and the other Ghostbusters don't know what he's picked, because of course he doesn't say what it is. We hear the thud of his footsteps first. And then we get this shot of just a small bit of the Marshmallow Man's head in between the buildings. That is such a great scene. And it cuts back to Ray, doesn't it? And he just says, the Stay off Marshmallow Man. Such such a well-executed scene. And, and, you know, what a way to introduce one of your villains.
0: Yeah, I always wondered as well whether, you know, because he's it, so believable. I always just assumed until quite recently that that was a, an American thing, you know, like a real like like the ones we've mentioned already. But it's not made up for the film. And can you think of another scene in the film where we actually, where we actually do see the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? Can you can you think of one?
1: What another scene in the film?
0: Not the actual monster, but the character itself.
1: On a packet? Uh yes, I do. It was actually one of my questions for oh, okay. I, I, I may as well tell, yeah, it's okay. It, it's it's them. the scene. No, no, no. We, I, come on. We could may as well just say it. it it's the scene with the exploded eggs.
0: It is, yeah.
1: Uh the steak puffed marshmallows are on the counter. Are, uh a bag of them, isn't it? But I've never noticed it before up until this week. But it, it's great. And of course, the, I don't I'm, you wouldn't necessarily say they defeated them, would you in the sense that they use the the proton beams and they kind of burnt him. Um, his face is horrible, isn't it? The Marshmallow Man does this uh, growl or snarl. Really, for something as light and, and and fluffy as he is, that face that he pulls when he's being attacked is, is horrible, isn't it? His face changes from
0: a smile to like this grimace, and that is, that is scary in itself. I do. I remember being scared of that when I was a child.
1: And of course they. Um, decide to, and I'm not sure whose idea it was um, in order to stop Goza, is to cross the streams, causing or resulting in one almighty explosion. I mean, I mean, if you watch that explosion, there's no way no one would have survived that, was it? It's like <laughs> the top 20 floors just engulfed in flames. Um, and of course, it starts raining marshmallow all over the streets below. It's actually shaving cream. I don't know if you knew that.
0: I did know that, yeah. And also, you know, the guy who plays Walter Peck. He gets covered in it, doesn't he? It rains down on him, and he gets absolutely gunged in it. And he said in a in a podcast or something that when he when he was talking about the scene with the special effects people, you know, he said how much stuff's gonna fall on me, and he said about seventy five pounds. And he said, but it, but it's okay because it's shaving foam. Well, seventy five pounds of feathers and seventy five pounds of gold. It's still £75 of guns, and you see it in the shot. Rewatch it if you can. He, he's hit by it. You
1: know, it really rains down on him. It's heavy, you can tell. But And that's, of course, how the, the defeat goes. And our heroes, well, they come down to a hero's welcome, don't we? The crowds cheer and everyone's saved. Um, even Dana and Lewis survive. Um, and, of course, we get one final blast of Ray Parker Jr.'s iconic theme, don't we?
0: Yeah, they 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 must have taken them a long time to get downstairs because it's nighttime when all this happens, and then yeah, when they emerge from the
1: building, it seems to be daytime. Yeah, that actually that never actually occurred to me. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we get uh, stuck into some of our trivia? What do you think? Of course. Did you know? Okay, j Dog. Did you know that in the early drafts, the movie was actually set sometime in the future? whereby the Ghostbusters weren't three failing scientists and a newcomer, but in fact, a global enterprise. Early storyboards even had them in futuristic helmets and futuristic uniform. The Ghostbusters could even cross into other dimensions. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that for the first time, it sounded something like, maybe more similar to like Men in Black. I'm totally glad they disregarded this idea. Yeah, I mean, I much prefer the origin story. Yeah, let's keep keep it in the 1980s, isn't it? Yeah. Here's one for you. The actor who played Walter Peck was a guy by the name of William Atherton. Um, he did such a good job at playing a movie douchebag that unfortunately for the man himself, he faced quite a lot of hatred from people on the streets. In fact, it's reported on one occasion he was attacked in a bar which is really sad um, because, of course, he's an actor. He's he's playing a role um, and and plays it really well. But it was just something I picked up. I thought was really sad, uh, and you wonder whether that happens a lot. Uh, I think something happened similar with um, the kid in Harry Potter. Can't remember his name, but I think he himself has said something similar. Kids shout stuff at him. Uh, it's it's something that people must put up with, isn't it?
0: It does happen, yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you've got people must love these things so much that they really buy into them and believe them. But then on the other hand, you've got, you know, these people, I'm not trying to feel sorry for people who get paid a lot of money general, generally to, to do this stuff, but, you know, the, the people are doing a job at the end of the day. And, okay, that art has obviously had a, an impact on your life so much that you feel like you can treat people in a certain way, but that's, that's not, it's just not right. It's wholly wrong. You no, know, and he's he's playing a part. Can you not? Can you not make a distinction between reality and fiction? Is that is that the kind of person you are? But then also you've got the uh, the idiots who would love nothing more than to do something like that and then go to their own friends and say, "Guess what I did?" Or you know, "Look what I did." And that's that's where all these stories come from, isn't it? About when people say such and such an actor is a is a is a Use the word we've used before, douchebag. But really, you know, they might they might have been having a, having a bad day, or and then someone's approached them and said, "Yeah, can I can I have your autograph?" Or in the modern age, just run up and take a photograph with them. And I,
1: I, that really winds me up. But they're not I, not, I shouldn't I, should ma- I shouldn't actually tell you these things that they no one always sets you off.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're only actors so that You know, they're they're not public, public property.
1: Here's one for you. A bit more lighter note now. Um, But the film was originally called The Ghost Smashes, and they obviously ended up being called The Ghostbusters, um, ghost and busters being separate words. However, a production company called Filmation intervened as they had already produced a series in the 1970s of the same name. So Dan Aykroyd had to drop the word the, and he also had to merge ghost and busters so we just had one with Ghostbusters um, and he also had to pay an undisclosed fee to Filmation for that privilege as well. Ah, OK.
0: That's,
1: um, that's an interesting one, JD. actually. And the last one I've got for you, j Um This was, I thought, was my favourite one. But did you know that there's an un... Well, it's unverified, but I thought I'd share it anyway because it's interesting, if anything. But there's an unverified internet rumour that Bill Murray's proton path was intentionally made heavier than the others because the actor was said to be at his creative best when he was most irritated. I thought that was great because I could actually see that being true.
0: <laughs> what a way to wind the guy <laughs> up.
1: In fact, I think they were meant to be heavy anyway. I'm sure I've read something about how heavy those packs were. Mm-hmm. So to make it heavier, Jesus, of God knows what it must have been like for Bill. Uh, did you have anything for me?
0: absolutely, JD. I mean, it's a mine, isn't it, this film? But linking in with what you said there about the earlier TV series called The Ghostbusters, there was a, a massive problem because, you know, it, it wasn't just a case of, okay, well, we'll just change the name. The Ghostbusters referred to themselves as Ghostbusters. And also they've got the scene, which you mentioned before as well, they're chanting their names at the end of the film. So it, they had to be Ghostbusters. It, it just had to be. And of course, um, it was worked out in the end, and a and, a, and an undisclosed uh, fee was paid. Uh, I think it had something to do with the head of Columbia Pictures, who made the film, a guy called Frank Price. Um, he was he was moving to Universal Studios, which had originally made or had something to do with making the Ghostbusters, and obviously that um, uh, greased the wheels as well, somewhat too to help things. But yeah, it was definitely a, a big, um, it was definitely a big legal problem. And of course, this um, this is the whole reason why, you know, the animated series is called... The Real Ghostbusters? The Real Ghostbusters.
1: Ah, oh, very interesting.
0: Okay, JD, um, another film which we haven't taken on yet, but National Lampoon's Vacation, which
1: was... Absol- very- absolutely yeah. adoring.
0: Well, it was directed by Harold Ramus And you know the opening of the song that's used through the film by... Lindsay Holiday Road. Holiday Road by Lindsay Buckingham from uh, Fleetwood Mac fame. He I feel was, like we should
1: almost edit it in just like you know, just to make everyone feel better because it's <laughs> such a great song.
0: Well, he was actually approached about doing a theme song for the film. Um, but he, he passed on it. Um, and then Ivan Reitman was hoping that maybe Huey Lewis in the News would, would do a song. And he even used the song I Want a New Drug as a sort of temporary filler song when they were cutting the film together. And unfortunately for them, Huey Lewis actually also declined. Do you know why he might have declined doing a film in 1984? song for a film in
1: 1984? May it have been uh, scheduling conflicts with another film?
0: Definitely, yeah. He was obviously on track to do uh, Back to the Future. So um, the song he did which was, of course, Back in Time to Back to the Future, and he didn't want to do any more soundtrack work. And then eventually the filmmakers approached Ray Parker Jr. to do a theme song, which which he did do, obviously, the, the classic. But I don't know if you've actually heard I Want a New Drug.
1: I haven't, but I almost feel like I know what you're going to say, because I think one of our listeners put this in the feedback, but I'll let you uh, go carry on, go on.
0: It's very, very similar. The tune goes, I want a new drug. Dun, dun. It's got that, that obviously thing from the, who you're going to call. You know, the, it's, it, the, the notes are almost identical. <laughs> um. So, yeah, it, it actually got so bad that um the song's publishers sued for
1: plagiarism and it was settled out of court. Wow. No, so I, I'm actually, up, up until this week, I wasn't aware of it at all, but I definitely need to hear that song, though, just to hear it for myself.
0: Yeah, check it out, yeah. Uh, so during the, when the movie, had a test screen, and obviously they do these things before the film's been finished, especially if it's a, an, an effects film, because they imagine that the test audience can fill in the gaps, and it's more about the pacing of the film and the characters and all that sort of stuff. So it was held for about 200, uh, just just 200 people who, who've been chosen at random at Columbia, Columbia Pictures' studio. And it was only three weeks after the film had finished production, finished um, finished filming. And Reitman was petrified, thinking, you know, was it going to be here? There's going to be this, that, and the other. Um, he was worried that maybe some of the absurd details, like the marshmallow man, might uh, take the audiences away from the film a bit. And also, which didn't help, the only effect. That had been fully completed was the opening effect with the um with the librarian so we couldn't really see everything because it was going to be be finished and so we waited sort of down the side of the studio and uh, down the side of the theater waiting in the wings just to see what people's um reactions were and he noticed that when people were laughing their heads off one minute and then hiding the next that uh, he was definitely onto something with that mix of horror and comedy, and he especially knew he was onto a hit when he was walking down the street in New York City just after the film had been released. That he saw uh, people on the street selling t-shirts with the with the iconic uh, Ghostbusters logo on.
1: Oh, That's crazy. I think the thing with I've noticed with American audiences is, is that a lot more enthusiastic about the movies, and you know they cheered a lot. I've seen footage on YouTube of you know, the de- cheer during the film. It's like something we don't do as much here. I definitely know that I've been in a couple of uh, cinemas where people have applauded at the end of a film and things like that. But um, I can imagine with Ghostbusters, you know, the, the glee that people would have had after first seeing that back in 84 would, would have been unparalleled. <laughs> yeah.
0: So there's two times where I've been in the States. One was um, in New York City. There's an Adam Adam Sandler film called Don't Mess With The (laughs) Zohan, which is a film that I wouldn't even choose to watch, but it was out at the time. When the film finished, the audience clapped, and I thought, what is Adam Sandler behind the curtain? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it wasn't just a one-off, you know, because it it was set in New York, and Adam Sandler's from New York. It wasn't that, because um, another time, I went to go and see the Halloween film by Rob Zombie, and the film finished, and what did everybody do? Everybody applauded at the yeah. end of the film. So it's just something that they do there. I don't
1: know. It's a bit more of an alien concept over here, but it's happening more than I have noticed. I think I went, when I went to, a, I was in America back in 1999, and I was in Washington, D.C., and I ended up going to see, it was a Jackie Chan film, and I think a bit like yourself, it wasn't so much that I wanted to see the film, it's just that I wanted to go to the movie theatre whilst I was in America. It just felt like something you had to do. Um, uh, the film was okay. Uh, I don't think people cheered after this one, so I'm afraid, you know, there wasn't so much love for Jackie Chan. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't there the tuxedo
0: or something
1: like that? Uh, I'm afraid, no, no. It was, uh, I think it was something called Double Dragon or Double Team. It was a double, I think it was him. And it was meant to be a twin, obviously played by himself. It wow. was, you know, your bog standard twin movie that I think John claude Van Damme's done a few, but but anyway, back to your trivia.
0: Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, Okay, so when writing, Dan Aykroyd had originally thought of another actor for the key master of Gozer, aka Lewis Tully. Do you know who that might have been?
1: I do. I think I've come across this in my research. Was it John Candy?
0: John Candy, yeah. He worked with, with him in 1941. I don't mean the uh, <laughs> the film. <I'm> gonna say <laughs> yeah. and the Blues brothers. Um with he'd worked with Reitman and Remus and Bill Murray and Stripes and also National Lampoons Vacation. Um now John Candy had a, a, an image in his mind of what Lewis Tully should be like. Now get this, he thought that he was going to be a a, a German man, a stern German. With a very thick accent, who keeps dozens of dogs in his apartment. He also wanted the character to be rewritten and given a star and role. And that wasn't what the, the filmmakers actually want themselves. So they ended up giving it obviously to Rick Moranis, and uh he brought his own sort of style to it, which I think fits the film much, much better. And I'd imagine that a lot of the things that he did were much more improvised than maybe John Candy would have done.
1: You know, we love John Candy. You know, no one will hide that. And You know, we make that clear as much as we can. We tweet a lot about him and things like that. But I'm with you on this one. Um, Rick, Rick Moranis plays it so well. And um, although he's kind of an understated character, he brings so much to it, Rick Moranis. And it's one of those, because we've watched the film now for 35 years, whatever it is, it's hard, it's hard to imagine anyone else playing that role as well. Um, the fact that he's small and, you know, a bit dorky. I don't know, John Candy may have been almost too big a presence to, know, take on such a, what was probably maybe a secondary level character. But yeah, I'm glad they stuck with Rick on that one.
0: Yeah, and I think obviously his character gets fleshed out a little more in the second film, much like Janine in that. Doesn't he eventually pull on one of the suits? He he does, does, doesn't he? I think
1: he turns up with mitts or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: He does some up. or rather, he does something, and it coincides with something that the go the you know the actual Ghostbusters are doing, and he looks like the hero, doesn't it? He? I
1: can't quite remember. The museum's covered in the, in the pink slime. That's it. Um, and whilst they're inside, taking on the real villain, he thinks <laughs> he's obviously <laughs> defeating the slime on the outside. So yeah. it's, it's great. It was was Ghostbusters? It was '89, wasn't it? Ghostbusters two. Was it was just on the cusp of the '80s and. Uh, so we will get a chance to to do an episode on that. But have you got any more trivia for us?
0: Yeah, just a really really quick one. Um, did you know JD was released on the same day as Gremlins?
1: Wow. So we had this uh, discussion. Did *Gremlins* wasn't released at Christmas? It was a was it a summer film? Summer, yeah, um, June or July. Interesting, it. and of course we know um, how good *Gremlins* did. I mean, I'm sure there was another film in in the same week or the same two weeks. I think there was three big films released in like a two week period. But you know what more could be said about 1984? It it just was a goldmine. Let's um, move on to some of our listener feedback. Listener feedback. Hey, a tweet came in from um, one of our regular contributors, Bong Ripper, Jack Tripper, at Libody, um, who said, that, It's a damn fine film. Ramus Murray and Ackroyd at their best, not to mention Moranis and Weaver. I look at human beings, especially if my dog doesn't like them. Similarly, you're suspect if you don't like the Ghostbusters. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's, we've said this about other films. It's like, I don't know anyone who doesn't like the Ghostbusters, do you? No, it's, I know, I've
0: I've never met someone who said that they didn't like the film. It's a whole, the franchise is just remarkable.
1: He also went on to say, if, if you keep your eyes peeled, Ron Jeremy is an extra and appears among the crowd, looking on as the firehouse explodes and yeah. the containment units are shut off. Did no, you pick I, up on that?
0: I did know this one, yeah. Um, I, I don't want to burst this bubble, but I believe it only happened
1: if, only in the widescreen version. <laughs> oh, poor Ron. Well, they may have needed the widescreen to fit <laughs> 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 Moving on. Um, <laughs> Lionel Gilmore at LG16Sphere who said, I remember watching the cartoon series as a child and didn't know that it was based on a movie. Um, No, I I read this and I I think because I was young when all this was out, I think I was a a bit of a similar boat in that I I wasn't sure which one preceded the other. But of course, the film was the beginning of the Ghostbusters, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was. And I think coming back to exposure to things when we were younger and in the days before the internet you know we would have been young and the cartoon would have been what we've would been would have been more likely to see and i think i definitely saw the cartoon and the second film before i saw the first film for sure
1: wow um chance webster at tunguske 1908 ebe simply said one word awesome yeah Christina M at McNary K, another one of our regular contributors, said, love it, especially when Ray summons the Marshmallow Man. Um, and, and it goes back to what we said before. It's iconic was the word you used, wasn't it?
0: Yes. It is iconic. And in the second film, they ripped off so many of their own scenes for that. Um, you know, you could argue that in many ways, the second film's a reaction of the first one. Um Got my own feelings on that. Going back to how, how I felt about it as a child and everything. So it's tied up in probably, I'm probably not the most objective person to ask. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely iconic. Uh,
1: this next tweet uh, goes into what we were discussing before about Huey Lewis. Um, Lucifer D at MNB MDNFM band, who said, one of the all-time greats, Loved it as a kid, loved it as an adult. My kids love it as well. Ray Parker Jr. got sued for the song, I believe, by Huey Lewis and the News, as they were asked to do it and declined. And the song was a rip-off of one of their own song tunes. So, yeah, more verification of what you said earlier. It was something I wasn't aware of, so thanks for sharing that. Yeah, you uh, listen
0: to I
1: Want A New Drug. Just listen to it, JD. The Force is strong with this one at The Real sp Mahdi, but check out this guy's profile pic by the way uh j dog or any of our listeners um i think he, he he's more than likely to be a ghostbusters fan because i think it's him as a child in a ghostbusters i think he's dressed as uh egon he's got the specs and the yeah, the proton back it was really funny who said love it the awesome cast story had heart comedy and raising spirits. Nope, I'm sure that's no pun intended. Slimer was a perfect nod to John Belushi and Stay puffed is iconic. The good thing about this tweet, he actually also shared a page. I don't know if you've seen this on our feed, j but he also shared a page from a early draft and it had one of the deleted scenes where they were discussing proton beams and Superman. And obviously it didn't make the cut. Um, but it's great, so do check it out. Spengler basically says that if the proton beam was fired at Superman on Earth, it wouldn't do much. But on Krypton, I think he's, the line is, we could slice him up like Oscar Mayer baloney. I thought that was a nice uh, little touch, and anyone who's interested, check that tweet out, because there's a little snippet of the the old script. But it makes you kind of want to read what the drafts where, doesn't it, when you see things like that?
0: Yeah, you always wonder, do you, what could have been? What, what might have been?
1: Well, that was all of our tweets. Don't know if you want to say a quick thank you, Jay Doug. I know you like to do that.
0: Yeah, I really would. I mean, I'm. I just, I, I'm so grateful for the fact that you that we've got people who not only listen to us but are willing to give us their time to just message us and drop us a message and get in touch and talk about films and things like that. And you know, I know, I know a tweet is is two seconds out of your life, but it means an awful lot, you know, and it. We, we do this and we've done this now for uh, just over a year. And it it started just out of the idea that when we get together and usually with a pint in our hands, we, we love to talk about things and we just thought if we could capture that and and maybe talk about it and, you know, we'll enjoy it. And other people might enjoy it too. And the fact that we've got regulars and, uh, you know, bomb trippers Jack Tripper, for one, and 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 all the other names that we just see time and again. I just want to say thank you very much just for just for taking your time. And I'm, like I say, I'm sure to you it's nothing, but, but, but just for us two guys, just two normal fellas just talking about films and cutting a, something together during a horrible time for the world, it, it, it means an awful lot. And I really appreciate it and thank you. And hope to
1: see it keep coming in the future. We've got loads for you. Well said, I couldn't have put it better. Let's put your knowledge of Goatbusters to the test. You and me. Okay, for this episode, J-Dog, I thought I would go for a numbers special. So I picked three questions for you. They are all number related. Um, So I'm going to give you all three and then you can fire your three questions back at me. But here we go. Question one. What was the name of the apartment block where Dana and Lewis lived? Well, I've...
0: <laughs> You've
1: already kind of made reference to it at some point, but there's a number involved as well.
0: Uh, well is it 503? Um 530? Something like that.
1: A very, a very good attempt. It's okay, go 550 Central Park West. Okay,
0: 550 Central Park West. Which, if it's just over the road from um, Central Park, I'd imagine it's very, very close to uh, the Dakota building where John Lennon lived and obviously was, was, was
1: murdered. Uh, yeah, <laughs> interesting. There you go. Um, question two for your numbers round. On the Ghostbusters commercial, what was the phone number to contact them?
0: 555. Five,
1: five. Uh, it's always going to be 555, five, five, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, oh, uh, ghost? Well, no, but that that's a valiant effort because, of course, the Americans do have this technique, don't they, of having numbers with words. i never understood that as a kid. Uh, I don't know if you want to... Do you understand why they do that?
0: Well, yeah, I mean... I, always, I must admit, of like seeing that when I was young first, I didn't quite get the idea how does it work with the letters and numbers. But then from when we were younger, I always remember our landline phones we always had, didn't they? One would be ABC, two would be DEF. So it makes sense that those letters link up with those numbers. So, yeah, it, it did make sense to me when I was younger. The 555 thing never made sense to me, though, until I was a lot older and then I realised why they do that. Well, why do they do that? Because, you know, if they put a real phone number in, then people will be getting frank phone calls all the time. So no one in the world has
1: a 555 number, basically?
0: No, 555 is the, is the you know, they'll put an area code in sometimes, which is an actual genuine area code. And then the 555 is just for movies. There you go. Well, I never knew
1: that, so thank that was
0: part of your trivia. Well, but so it actually, wasn't. Just, just linked in with that, though, in, in modern times, in this country, um, British Telecom, they've got a massive list of numbers that start with 07 that nobody can have as a mobile phone number. So that, you know, if you see it in a a film or TV series, that's used specifically for that, because you always see
1: people's phones, don't you, in the film? There you go, even more trivia for you. But, of course, it wasn't 555 Ghost, although it was a a nice little guess. It was uh, 555-2368. But question three in the last of your numbers round, none out of two so far...
0: those numbers didn't represent letters, no? No, it was just oh. normal numbers.
1: Oh. Um, so none out of two. And, and you know, this Ghostbusters, I thought you were a big fan of. So if you get this wrong, I'd be very concerned. Hold and on. I think you might get you might
0: get this one. You would get to phone a friend, because in which case the question you should be asking me
1: is Who are you gonna call? <laughs> <laughs> okay. How much did the Ghostbusters charge for capturing Slimer? This was actually stated in the film. It was? Um, I don't know. $2,000? Not a bad guess. It was $5,000. And they even break it down uh, because Bill Murray comes out with the... Or one of them comes out holding the ghost trap. And Bill Murray then says that'll be $4,000 for the entrapment and then for proton charging and... Store and it's an extra one thousand, and that's the point. I think with the hotel guy says you know out of the question, and said that's fine. We can we can just take it back in, but (laughs) no, it it was five thousand dollars. But there you go, none out of three for you this round. Shocking, isn't it? It is, but you know we're not all fans of Ghostbusters. We we we, you know we we can't all be Ghostbusters fans. What can I say? Uh, Don't be ghoulish. (laughs) Go on. Well, you hit me with some hard
0: ones, JD. So I'm going to hit you with some hard ones as well. Um, who turned down the role of Peter Benkman to star in another film from
1: 1984? Um, I feel like I know the answer. Was it Eddie Murphy?
0: No. However, Eddie Murphy was either considered auditioned or had something to do with possibly playing the part of Winston.
1: Okay, maybe I've because I do remember the faces that were approached to be in this film. Can I say the three names?
0: Sure.
1: I think one of them was Eddie Murphy. One of them was Chevy Chase, and I think the other was Michael Keaton.
0: Uh, Unfortunately, um, it's going to be a dark night for you with these questions, JD, (laughs) because the answer is none other than Mr. Mahoney, Steve Guttenberg. Really? Yeah, he turned it down because he went, he was starring in another film from 1984, which was an earlier episode.
1: The Great Police Academy. Of
0: course,
1: yeah. I think Mahoney, uh, you, Mahoney I'll keep calling him Mahoney, Steve Guttenberg would have actually pulled pulled it off. I think he would have, Ghostbusters would still have been a mega hit with Steve Guttenberg in that role, but Bill Murray just brought something much more than me.
0: Three men and a little poltergeist.
1: Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, so what's your next one? Uh, OK, there's some. I've got some working titles. For in fact, speaking of Three Men and a Poltergeist, there, there was a famous urban legend, isn't it, about the film? <laughs> a ghost that actually... Was it in Three Men and a Baby or Three Men and a Little Lady? I can't remember which one. But yes. The, the rumour was that there's a scene in that film where there's a, a ghost in, the, in one of the back, background shots uh, of course, it turned out that it was just a cardboard cutout. I, I think of Ted Danson was me.
0: Didn't someone give him it as a present? And you know what his response was? Go on. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got a couple of working titles for Ghostbusters. Okay, um, the clue is they both start with ghost. Can you name the ending?
1: Uh, So you're basically the the waking titles were ghost something yeah. Um, I'm sure I heard this ghost smashes. Oh, you're very very close, CD. Okay. Um, Shall I have another guess? Can I give you one more guess? So if ghost if smashes if it's close to smashes, ghost mashes. Mm, You you in another dimension now somewhere near. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, okay so ghost stoppers and ghost blasters
1: oh i think the second one was was okay actually it's um it, it doesn't sound as good as ghostbusters but as we always say on this show it's only what you know it's like had we had ghost blasters for 35 years we would have said the same about ghostbusters wouldn't we yeah it's
0: like that scene in last action hero when we see uh, they're in the blockbusters, and they see Sylvester Stallone on the motorbike in Terminator Two. <laughs> it's was great, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, how much did uh, Stance pay for the hearse, the ecto mobile?
1: Oh, was it? I am thinking it was something around seven thousand dollars.
0: A bit less than that, JD. It was four thousand
1: eight hundred dollars. Ah.
0: Actually, works out was it? nearly twelve thousand dollars in adjusted for inflation.
1: There you go. So that was six questions, six wrong answers, really, for us to... <laughs> I've
0: got
1: another Not question for you, J.D. Go
0: on then. Seeing as you asked me what the uh, the apartment building was called, I've got what was Dana's apartment number?
1: Oh, um, was it? I'm just going to just take a wild guess on this, yep. but was it? I maybe rub this down. No, I didn't write it down. I'm just going to take a wild stab. Okay, so it was the 22nd floor. So I'm going to say that it was... an American apartments always have like a form numbers. So I'm going to say that it was 2206. Uh, You've got it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good Google by you,
0: J.D., actually. No, it,
1: it wasn't a Google. <laughs> I <it> down <laughs>
0: 2206. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, well done, J.D.
1: I actually started to convince. I actually started to convince myself when I was trying to rationalise what I was <laughs> um, going to and here's,
0: um, here's another one for you, just to finish off. Um, and I don't think it's mentioned in the film, but the Ghostbusters all wear uh, the same watch, and it's made by the company Seiko. And it was an actual watch that was out in the '80s. It was. It had a special function, though. There. there was something about it that I could do, and they supposedly used it for that. But I don't. I Just maybe it was in a deleted scene, but I don't remember it being in the film. All right. Any ideas what the watch might have been used for?
1: Related, um, related to ghosts. Oh, I don't know. A, a part of you know uh, containment. Not not quite, but I can
0: see why you'd think that. So obviously in the 1980s, you had got um, a big boom in uh, technology and the microchip and all that sort of stuff. So the smaller, the better. And if you've seen a film with, with Dan Aykroyd in called uh Dragnet, which is based on the old 50s TV series, there's a scene where him and Tom Hanks are sat in a car and Tom Hanks is watching the television on his watch. Do you remember that scene in particular? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. So there was, there was a watch that could change television. Uh, there's a watch that you could watch telly. There's a watch that you could change the television channel on, a, re- uh, a remote control. And I always wanted one of those when I was a kid. And the one that they had in this film could record eight seconds of uh, voice. So it was meant to be recording uh, voice EVP, electronic voice phenomenon.
1: Oh, brilliant.
0: No, I've actually. Do you actually see the watches in the film? I, I think you do because I've seen, it might have just been a publicity shot where they were all sat with the wrists sort of out like that. So it must have been mentioned in a, in a scene or in a draft or something, but they all have this same type of watch and to get one now, as you can imagine, they're, they're very expensive. Even though the, well, you know, anything from the '80s is going to be a bit old and maybe not in the best of shape. Still,
1: oh, really interesting. You know, I'm not going to spend too long talking about mine. I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but mine is the opening scene of the movie, the library scene. It just thrusts you right into the movie. It, it, you know, it, it, as you say, it, we don't have anyone talking there's no uh, words we don't even see a ghost but it just gives you so much it's creepy and um, the use of the camera everything about it and of course the fact that it just culminates with the scream followed by the theme it's just perfect so I, w- I won't spend too much time that's my favorite scene so I'll hand over to you okay my favorite
0: scene is probably when they get together with the mayor in city hall which we mentioned earlier. Uh, there's just so many quick lines there, which are which are brilliant. You know, the one where um, he they call they call Peck dickless. And then he says they tried to cause an explosion. The mayor says, is this true? And then, <laughs> and then he says, Megan says, it's true. This man has no dick. <laughs> They're just taking the mic aren't they? Uh, but there's a point where uh, Winston says, you know, I've only been with these guys for just a few months. Uh, but I've seen shit that will turn you white
1: <laughs> and we said before he's got some of the best lines in the film
0: yeah yeah and then when they're talking about what could possibly happen when the um, you know when the gateway opens and that and he starts saying coming out with all these things like 40 years of darkness human sacrifice and my favourite one dogs and cats living together yeah. mass hysteria yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, it's a classic. And, you know, there was three or four that you could have picked, um, but, you know, the film doesn't have many bad scenes, does it? It's a plethora of greatness.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the only ones that stand out, not necessarily as bad scenes, are just where some of the effects are just a bit stagey. So yeah. the shots where it's actually on the roof of the building don't quite match up with what the people down below are seeing, I find. Um, you know, firstly, as well, the people down below seem to be reacting even though they don't see anything apart from the explosion, but they seem to be re- reacting nonetheless. But then when you see those, the shots of the building, the, the gargoyles look, you know, they don't look like concrete. They, they don't, they look a bit fake. And then the, certainly the buildings that are surrounding definitely look like they're made out of cardboard with a few lights in them.
1: I must admit, I've noticed the, Dogs when they were supposed to make made stuff. They were like more like foam. I did notice that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, but you know, we're not gonna hold that against it. No. Um let's move on to the current standing of Ghostbusters 1984. Movie legacy. Of course, we had the sequel, didn't we? In 1989. We've had the animated series, the real Ghostbusters, some computer games, comics, lunchboxes, you name it. It definitely became a franchise. And there was lots of talk about a third film for many, many years. It seemed to be just one of those projects that just got lost in production and people just kind of kept on talking about it. And, of course, we lost Harold Ramis. He passed away, which was a real shame because, you know, you couldn't imagine the Ghostbusters without some good yet. It's, you know, it just wouldn't have felt right. You know, I don't know how they would have got around that. But we do have... I knew Ghostbusters film on the horizon, Ghostbusters Afterlife. We we did, of course, have the female, uh, all-female Ghostbusters in 2016. It's a bit like Marmite, isn't it? Some people love it, some people hate it. I think for me and you, and, and, you know, we've talked about the 2016 Ghostbusters a couple of times. It it didn't seem to be the kind of comedy that the 1984 film had. Did It just, it missed some of those notes, um, but we've got another film on the horizon, Ghostbusters Afterlife. It's actually been directed, I think, by Jason Reitman, which is, is Ivan's son. Yeah. So there's a nice little tie-in there, but I, th- I suppose it's fair to say that Ghostbusters uh, is still a-, a powerful name. Everyone knows it, isn't it? It's it's a franchise, isn't it, as, as I said?
0: Yeah, the logo is going to be timeless, and the idea There's so much mileage that could be had out of that, and and I think it's definitely something that's going to go on and on and on. Ghostbusters, I do think there'll be more of them, but not in the police academy sense. Uh, I, I do think it will it's always going to be around in some form or another, which is a, a brilliant lasting legacy to have. Um, you mentioned there about the remake about four or five years ago now. It's amazing how time flies. You know, these things become old really quickly, don't they? Um, again, I can't say I was a massive fan of it. One of the things that really stood out for me in that film, and I haven't seen it since, was just the, I think this stands for a lot of films now. The, the reliance on the CGI, um, you know, the technology to, for the effects and things, it, it, they lose something in that process. I do feel, um, you know, there's something lazy, not lazy because it's expensive, um, but there's just something it takes away the movie magic, you know, the like I mentioned earlier about the guys thinking the, and girls thinking about how to make an egg cook, that sort of thing. Flash forward to the future, you've got some, you know, nice and colourful and whatnot, but all computerized. And you know, am I playing a video game here or watching a film and yeah? There's
1: something there's something charming about a practical effect, isn't it? And seeing it in the it, you know, it's
0: yeah, and I'm not saying it's all about effects, but there is something about that film and its effects, the original, that do take you to a different place entirely. You're seeing a, a, a real-life city, New York, represented in a, in, a, in a way that uses effects to take you to a, a different <laughs> dimension, um, almost literally in the case of the film. But the, the film's got everything. I'm, it's not all about effects, but there's so much that the original's got that I felt that that remake was definitely lacking. Some people enjoy it, like you're saying. That's fine. It's not a problem. Um, But I do feel that there's a lot more mileage to be had out of the Ghostbusters. And let's just let's see. I mean, who knows? There's definitely the the love for it. We spent the '90s talking about the possibility and the early 2000s of a new one, and it's happening, or rather, it happened. And now we've got another one in the pipeline. This afterlife thing. This should be interesting to see. And you know, who knows where it's going to go.
1: The trailer for Afterlife I thought was quite good Um, you obviously have that great line by Bill Murray when he starts talking about karma and fate and they they kind of narrate that over the new trailer, really clever how they tied it in and uh, it subtly kind of nods to Egon I think it's his granddaughter isn't it Uh, it references the fact that she she talks about her granddad's old farm and he goes and she sees all these collections of mould and bacteria which is some of their references, but nothing's lost on the original, no matter what has happened subsequently. Nothing takes away the brilliance, and it doesn't seem to affect people's love of the 1984 Ghostbusters, does
0: it? No, no. And, uh, you know, we talked about a nightmare, a nightmare in Elm Street and how sub- subsequent sequels and uh, spin offs and films that have aped the genre. I mean, I don't think much as a Ghostbusters genre, but you know, you've always got the original to go off, and that's always going to be there. So that's, that's the lasting legacy for me.
1: And what about poor Harold Ramos? It's a shame that we lost him and would have been nice to. I, I would have liked maybe a new Ghostbusters with the original four. If you had clever writers, maybe it could have happened, but um, it wasn't to be.
0: Yeah, and maybe it's just a product of its time. Maybe, you know, it's lightning in a bottle. You can't you can't recreate it again. Uh, shame he didn't get to, to live to see anything beyond that or be in anything beyond the Time and tide does it for people, doesn't it?
1: All that said, J-Dog, the time has come for you to give your rating for Ghostbusters. So what'll it be? Well, I'm going to have to turn my proton pack up to 10 for this one, JD. Nicely put. Um, I agree with you on this. I think uh, Ghostbusters really is one of the mega hits of the 80s. And, you know, it's such a beloved film in my household. And, you know, me and you have spoke about it down the years. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's another 10 for us. Uh, We're starting to wrap up a few 10s now. But such is the power of that decade, I'm sure there'll be plenty more to come. But That just about wraps up everything for episode 16. Yeah. I'll and just as always
0: one more thing to mention, JD, that I didn't mention at all. A little bit of trivia, maybe just to squeeze in there, if you don't mind.
1: Squeeze it in. Go on. Okay. You've got, no, actually cut, cut that bit out and squeeze it in. Sounds rude. <laughs> go on, fire, go on, fire, fire away. It was just a little
0: factoid, actually. Um, you know, in the we've talked about the real Ghostbusters, the cartoon version. Um, the person who did the voice of Peter Benkman in that in that TV series was also the voice of Garfield the cat in the Garfield TV series. A man called Frank Welker. Well, of course, later on down the down the line, Bill Murray ended
1: up playing Garfield, Garfield himself. The Garfield films. So I didn't actually see. I didn't end up seeing that. I don't know if you did. I did, yeah. I, um, it's actually one of the only films that i have walked out of the cinema while
0: <laughs> watching.
1: <it>. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I hope you've all enjoyed the show. That has been episode 16 of The Secrets of Time. If you did enjoy it, you can always uh, check out some of our content. We are on Twitter at The Seconds of Time. And of course, we're now on Instagram. Um, a little bit of an update for you. We are so oh, circles of time 80s. Do you know? I need to rehearse that one, but uh, you'll also find links to our Instagram page on our Twitter page. So check us out, give us a follow. Uh, we post some uh, interesting things on there, not just our movie reviews. Take care, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and we'll see you all next time.
0: Thank you, everybody, and goodbye. See you next time, nerds.